Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see each of you here this morning. I know it's a little warm. Um, the windows are open. There's not much I can do about that. But uh, God is good through it all. And uh, please don't let the weather be too much of a distraction. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn back to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be beginning uh, the last uh, letter that our Lord writes to the seven churches. Uh, we'll probably spend uh, this week and maybe one more week after that, we may look at this epistle and two more sermons, I'm not quite sure yet. And the reason why is because there are so many things that I believe are pertinent to this day and age in which we live that Christ addresses here in this church at Laodicea. Most of us, if we know anything about the seven churches to, that our Lord writes to the churches in the book of Revelation, uh, we all are somewhat familiar with this church at Laodicea. Uh, we're familiar with that designation that Christ gives to this church. It's neither hot nor cold. This church is a lukewarm church, and we have a very graphic uh, description of our Lord's response to that lukewarm church. Our Lord says that he will spew, he will spit, literally he will vomit that church out of his mouth. It shocks us to hear this, uh, particularly if I can say it this way, after we've, uh, we've just sung this hymn that, that rightly brings out so many things about the love and the grace of God. Uh, the fact that when my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Uh, the fact that when my faith is cold, uh, Christ will hold me fast. Well, these things are true, but I want you to know and understand that while these things are true, the reality of a lessening or a weakening of our devotion, our love and affection for Christ is never a state or a condition that we should be satisfied with. If I can say it this way, Christ is not satisfied with it. Yes, Christ will come alongside. Yes, Christ will support us. Yes, Christ will see us through. But I want you to know and understand that Christ calls you and I as his church to determine faithful and loving service not only to his person but to his cause as well. I hope and I pray that by the grace of God you can embrace that thought as to how Christ calls you to follow him here this morning. Well, with all this in mind, please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation, the third chapter, and we will read the final section of this third chapter, verses 14 through 22. Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Again, please hear the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 and following. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and, that, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be thou as therefore, and repent, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And, and hit to him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let us pray, our Father and our God and our dear Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would assist us 
as we look at this final letter that is addressed here in the book of Revelation. Oh, give us grace, we pray. Incite our hearts to true loving zeal for you, we ask. Keep us from this, 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 this condition of, <clears throat> of spiritual lukewarmness, lukewarmness. <clears throat> and work within us a true and holy zeal for you and for your cause. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things I want you to think back with me is the, the fact that every time that our Lord Jesus Christ addressed these churches here in the book of Revelation, he did so in a way that did two things. He did so in a way that exposed the need or the condition of that church, and then he introduced himself in such a way that showed that everything that that church needed, Jesus Christ was sufficient for that. So in other words, there is not a situation or a condition that the church of Christ is in that Christ is not sufficient for. There is not a situation or circumstance that you and I are in that Christ is not sufficient for. Christ presents himself to his church in this way, both to uncover those things which are lacking and to show that whatever those things are, he is sufficient to make up that need. And so Christ presents himself to his church as the one who is all-sufficient. This is a wonderful, this is a wonderful way to view your Savior, Jesus Christ, in your difficulties, in your trials, in your uncertainties. Understand that whatever those uncertainties are, whatever those difficulties are, whatever those challenges are, can I say it this way? It is given to you through the Scripture and through the Spirit of God to go into the Word and mine out this precious gold to see how Christ is sufficient in your situation. Every situation here this, this represented here this morning. Are you here with uncertainties? Are you here with uh, uh, difficulties concerning family? Are you here with difficulty concerning finances? Are you trying to make decisions for your future? I'm saying to you, Christ is sufficient for all these things. Amen. That's number one. The other thing I want you to see is that so oftentimes when our Lord was addressing himself to the churches here, so oftentimes what we found was that the condition of the church mirrored or matched or in some way, shape, or form took on the identity, the identity of the culture. In other words, in almost every situation except for two, the church at Smyrna and the church at Pergamos, in almost every situation, I'm sorry, the church, uh, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia, in almost every situation, the church found itself kind of acquiescing or accommodating to the culture. And this was always problematic, and this was always something that the Lord Jesus Christ had to address himself to. It'll be no different here when we look at this church in, in Laodicea. Laodicea will take on the very characteristics that mark the Laodicean culture and society. And therefore, that kind of self-complacency uh, that Laodicea had by way of its own ability to provide for itself, that, self, that complacency uh, was settling into the church. And this was highly problematic, highly disturbing, even revolting to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll develop that here as we go along. But I want to emphasize this point to you because I want you to know and understand that it is always a challenge for a church in any age or in any situation not to take on the complexion or the kind, of, the kind of influence of the culture. Whatever the culture is, there is a tendency for the church to be somewhat like that. So you and I, we must be aware not only of our interpersonal settings, we must be aware of our cultural surroundings as well. Let me read what I have here concerning this. So many times a church takes on the characteristics of its social and cultural environment. 
Rarely is the church so effective that it becomes the primary influence in society. I want to say that again. Rarely is the church so effective that it becomes the primary influence in in a society. Now, this has happened at times in the past, but most often it does not. We need to look no further than our own families to see that the greatest challenge for Christian parents is to pass on true Christian experience. Principles may be successfully passed on, Traditions may be passed on, but the great challenge is to pass on true Christian experience. Now, of course, this can only be done through the work of the Spirit converting the hearts of our children, and we are all aware of this. This is even more pronounced in societies and cultures. Yes, a form of, yes forms of Christianity can mold and shape the dominant thought patterns and general outlines of society, But all of this, apart from the converting grace of God, only leaves the shell and not the inner reality. And what had happened to the Laodicean church was essentially this. They retained the outward shell, but there was no inward life and zeal. There was everything that you would look at that you would make, that they would look at themselves. And they would give self-examination and self-consideration. And they would say, you know what, we're doing pretty good. Churches do that. Organizations do that. They take stock of where they're at. And this church was taking stock of itself. And it says, you know what, we're doing pretty good here. You know, we have our financial needs met. We're living in a, in, in a society where it is providing for us everything that we need. And everything just seems to go along, along fine. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church and he exposes the great, the great lack that they, are, that they actually have. And so we must make sure that as we stay faithful to Christ, as we live for Christ in this day, we must make sure that we are not just drifting or sliding or even maybe purposely going the way of the culture. This has been one of the common, commonly repeated themes through, these, uh, through this series of sermons in the church of Revelation. To be honest with you, it's been somewhat surprising to me to see how this comes up over and over again. This was not part of my pattern or something that I was aiming at, but it just seems to be bubbling up from the text. So oftentimes, the very way in which Christ was addressing himself to this church, as I said before, was exposing a need within the church, an error within the church, a sin within the church, and then when he introduces himself in a formal way, he shows that he is sufficient to all those lacks. And so what he's calling the church to is not to look to the culture to be, again, self-satisfied. Not to look to themselves to find sufficiency, but to look to Christ and to Christ alone. So my friends, my brothers and sisters, I ask you the question, have you and have I embraced this on a very personal level? Is that our personal conviction that going forward we can only do so by way of our union with Jesus Christ? That we, we can only do so by way of our identity with Christ? And as we do that as individuals, you see, this will permeate the life of this church. Can I say it this way? Your spiritual mindset and attitude, your individual spiritual mindset and attitude has so much to do with the overall, with the overall, uh, uh, the overall identity of this church. Is your love for Christ waning? It'll have an effect. Is your love for Christ increasing? It'll have an effect. Yes, so much again is, is uh, so much is impactful by the, by, by, by the way of the, the ministry of the word and the ministry of the, uh, of the formal ministry of the church uh, impacting the congregation. But so much of your own interaction with Christ has impact on, society, on, on the church. And so I call you, my brothers and sisters, to see in Christ as one who is sufficient for every one of your needs. 
Now, what's interesting in this passage of Scripture, let me just give you some background as to Laodicea, the city, and the things that were kind of creeping into the church. Laodicea was one of these wealthy ancient cities. Uh, it was a city that was kind of interesting. Uh, there were a number of, uh, of uh, commercial centers that were located in Laodicea. Laodicea, is, uh, by way of its location, was located very near uh, the city of Colossae that Paul wrote an epistle to. It was also very near another city, Hierapolis, uh, that is mentioned in the, in the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. And these three cities formed something of a, of a hub in that day. These three cities, again, were significant. Uh, as a matter of fact, Laodicea was kind of like the last place you would be able to go to exchange your money as you travel further eastward on to India and, 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 and areas in that direction. So it was a financial center. The city of Laodicea also was known for its uh, medical uh, kind of prowess, we might say. Uh, it was famous for uh, an, an ancient eye salve uh, that was used to uh, cure uh, ancient you know, diseases of the eye. Uh, these, uh, these, the, this eye salve would be something that was uh, concocted by uh, those who knew what they were doing and, of course, placed on the eyes, and it would uh, provide some medicinal relief. So it was a financial center. It was a, it was a medicinal center. Also, Laodicea was known for its uh, garment, for its clothing uh, industry as well. It, uh, it produced a very uh, robust uh, 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 garment uh, made of wool, uh, very useful in that day. And it's very, very interesting that each of these things, it's, it's, it's financial uh, center, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's medicinal center, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's garment uh, center, all come out in the, uh, in, in, in the epistle that our Lord uh, writes. And he does this because so many of those things that gave prosperity and gave security to the people of Laodicea were filtering into the church, giving it a sense of its own security and, of, and, and causing it to become complacent and therefore neither cold nor hot and therefore lukewarm. And therefore, when they examined themselves and they said, we're good to go. We're rich and we have need of nothing. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. Not only are you, you, are you not in need of nothing, your lukewarmness is so repulsive to me that it is causing within me a nausea that would lead to me vomiting you out of my mouth. And the church was probably saying, what? We're that? Wait a minute. I thought there was this unconditional love. There is. But unconditional love, if I can say it this way, is not one-dimensional, is it? Unconditional love. What does Jesus say in this, in, in this letter? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And therefore repent. And it's out of love that Christ draw, uh, brings the, the attention of this church to these things. And it's out of love that Christ makes known to you issues and situations in our lives that are not right with him. And it's out of love that the Spirit of God has sent to us to convict us and to move us to holiness and to move us to repentance. I'm going to get way ahead of myself here in this sermon. But you must understand the Christ who comes knocking in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 is the Christ who is calling out sin as well. Yes, he desires your fellowship. He'll come, if you open the door, he'll come in and he'll sup with you. He desires all these things you see. But he also desires your zeal and your fervor and your love for him as well. And there's a sense in which he, is not, he, he will not just settle in and accept you and I in a lukewarm condition. And so again, we'll take a look at all these things. 
Now, with that as the background, what becomes interesting is this, is the way that our Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself to this church. Let's take a look at verse 14 here, and notice what we have. Jesus says this, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now probably what's happening here is as our Lord is introducing himself, he's probably introducing himself in, in two primary ways. It's easy to look at this and say that there are three things that Christ is setting forth of himself. He is the Amen, and then secondly, the faithful and true witness, and then thirdly, the beginning of the creation of God. It may be better, however, to understand this, that those first two descriptions are, are really one description. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, what's interesting about this is, is that our Lord uh, has already identified himself as the one who is true. You remember, you remember, I believe it was to the church at, uh, uh, to the church, was it there in Philadelphia, where he, he described himself as the one uh, who was, uh, as the Holy One, uh, the one that is true. And what else, and, and you remember we said that these were terms that point us in the direction of the, of the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting about these terms used here is that our Lord is saying to this church at Laodicea, Listen and understand, I am the true and the authentic witness. And the things that I witness to by way of what I see are true and authentic. You may think again that your situation is fine, but that's not what I see. And understand, I don't see things wrong, Jesus is saying. When I say, when I say I don't, you know, he doesn't see things wrong, he doesn't mean that he doesn't see anything wrong with that church. He means that whatever he says about that church that is wrong, he's not seeing it in a wrong way. It's truly in that situation. There's something, there's something else that's interesting here. There seems to be a, something of a, uh, something of a, a reference uh, to an Old Testament passage of Scripture where God makes himself known in the following way in, in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but just, li just uh, listen uh, how this passage reads. Uh, he that blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former, former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now what's interesting here is this. This passage of scripture in Isaiah 65 seems to be the backdrop of the two things that are being stated of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, again, he is the true and faithful witness. That's number one. Number two, again, has reference to this new creation. Look again in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, <clears throat> the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is referring to himself in this category that sets him out as the creator, yes, of the old creation, <clears throat> excuse me, but the creator of the new creation as well. We have to get to all this, so just be patient with me for a moment here. And the first thing I want you to see is essentially this. The Laodiceans were being seduced or deceived or by way of their own spiritual carelessness were allowing the themes and the, and the impressions of the larger culture to make them think that life was really lived in keeping with the standards of the Laodicean culture. That if you really wanted to live life, Laodicea had, Laodicea had it all. And this isn't this something that we face in our day? I, 
I, my, 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 and I mean this sincerely, my, my heart goes out to, to, to young people here. I know the, the, the challenges of a culture that pulls upon you. I know, I know the challenges of a, of a mindset that really makes no room for the things of God. And if it makes any room for the things of God, certainly does not make, itself, make room for itself for the exclusivity of the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon your soul. And so there you are with friends that may be unsaved and are not at all familiar with the, with the call of the gospel to love Christ. And, and you think there are so many other things in this world I can love. And there are the things of this world that present standards of excellence to you. And you think to yourself, oh, if I can only achieve that. And there are things by way of material wealth and material goods that the world presents itself. And you think only if I can have a portion of that or more of that, how much better my life would be. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, no, that's not where it's at. He's saying, I myself am the true giver of life. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, truth, and the life. This is why Jesus Christ says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you think Christ is calling you to himself to keep you from the things of blessing and the things of good in this world? He's not. But he's calling you, again, to enjoy those things, to engage those things under his lordship and not, only, and not under your own lordship. Are you willing to do that? And oh, by the way, by the way, parents, and by the way, grandparents, older brothers and sisters in Christ, we're susceptible to that, to that seduction as well, are we not? It's so easy for us to transfer what's important to what the world kind of presents to us as opposed to stand on the certainty that only in Christ, again, will my greatest needs be fulfilled. Only in Christ can my, ha my, can my highest happiness be achieved. Only in life can there be, excuse me, only in Christ can there be a life well lived. And so Jesus Christ presents himself to this church as the one who is the answer for all the things that they seem to be seduced with at this time. Now, the other thing that's interesting is here is the way our Lord uh, described himself as the, uh, as the beginning of the creation of God. Two things need to be recognized here. Number one, uh, the, city, the ancient city of Laodicea, because of its wealth, and because of the fact, you've heard me say this before, so many of these cities in the ancient world were susceptible to earthquakes. That there's a major fault that goes right through that whole area of, of Asia Minor. So earthquakes, volcanoes, very, those cities were all very susceptible to it. And you might remember, I believe that there was at least two of the other churches had experienced earthquakes, and the, and the Romans had contributed large sums of money in order to rebuild those cities. One of the cities was renamed uh, after the uh, after the uh, the Roman emperor uh, in, uh, as, as, a, as an expression of gratitude, um, and so we see that Rome was uh, was there to, to help rebuild the cities. But with Laodicea, when they had experienced uh, an earthquake uh, that was devastating in 60 A.D., they were able of their own wealth and their own sufficiency by way of their commercial ability to rebuild that city without any help from Rome. They were sufficient to the moment, as it were. They didn't need outside help from anyone. They were fully capable to do that which needed to be done. And so there was a sense in which this city of Laodicea was something of a new creation. It was refurbished. You can imagine, and, and the book of Revelation is, is written in, in, uh, around, uh, around the mid-90s, maybe 93, 95 A.D., that earthquake occurred in, in 60 AD, a mere 30 years after. And that city must have had many of the marks of being completely up to date 
that city must have had many marks of being, again, just thoroughly modern, we would say. <clears throat> and the city would have had a sense about itself that they were this, this new creation. And so when Christ comes to this church and he says, I am the beginning of the creation of God, he's saying to the Laodicean church, please, don't think that this is what it's all about. Don't think your ability to rebuild is what makes something significant in my sight. Understand, I am the beginning of the new creation. And it's interesting because he probably is specifically referring to the fact that once you and I come into faith in Jesus Christ, you're a new creature. You're brought into the family of God. Old things are passed away. I don't know what, I don't know what your past are, what your past consists of. But so many times when that passage of scripture is preached from, it's rightly emphasized that no matter how bad and how sinful and how much you were involved in sin. Jesus Christ, by way of his blood, cleanses your soul from every stain. And he makes you a new creature in Christ. And you're brought into this family of God. You're brought into his kingdom. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thought. It's a wonderful concept to see developed in the scripture. But there's another sense when our Lord refers to himself as the beginning of the creation of God. What's interesting is that when you look at the epistle that Paul wrote to the Colossians, Paul spends a significant amount of the first chapter laying out the fact that Jesus Christ possesses all the attributes of, the, of, of deity. He's God manifest in the flesh, and we see this by way of his ability to create. Remember how, how John says it in his gospel, John chapter 1, uh, uh, John chapter 1 verse 3. He is before all, uh, uh, he, uh, for by him were all things created. In Colossians chapter 1 verse uh, 15, he is before all things, and all things were created by him and for him. And so Jesus Christ is referred to as the one who creates all things. Why is this significant? You remember what I said just a moment ago? Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Hierapolis they were all within a, uh, within a radius of about 15 miles of each other. And so whatever the error that the Colossians were dealing with, the Laodiceans would have been dealing with that as well. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself in this way, do you understand what's being said? Don't look to this rebuilt city you happen to live in and think this is the sum and substance of everything. I am the beginning of the new creation. Don't look to Laodicea by way of its, by way of its success in commerce and, and finance and, and, uh, and medicine and think that they're the sum of everything. No, that, is, that belongs to me. I am the true and faithful witness, the beginning of the new creation. And so Jesus Christ presents himself again to this church in a way that he shows himself to be sufficient to every need. I ask you the question. I ask you the question, is that the way that you embrace Christ this morning as sufficient to every one of your needs, as sufficient to every one of your situations, that in Jesus Christ you have everything that you need? Now don't get me wrong, Christ will minister in you and through you, Christ will give you gifts, Christ will give you talents, Christ will make you useful, not only in the church but in the larger world as well. But I'm saying to you, if I can just sum it up in one sentence, live this life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And can I add this? And do it with zeal. Why? Because lukewarmness is nauseating to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing to think that these words can come out of our Lord's mouth, but they do, and we must deal with them. So that's the first thing I want you to see here in this passage of Scripture, how that Christ is sufficient to every need that this congregation has. But the next thing that he does, as he does with every one of these churches, is he gives his diagnosis. And the diagnosis that he gives on this church is, again, it's somewhat well-known, somewhat famous. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish that thou wert cold or hot. Therefore, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spoo thee out of my mouth. 
We're introduced to a concept here that's very interesting. And this is, it's, it is this concept of lukewarmness in the Christian life. Now, we have, to, we have to engage this. There has been a way in which this concept has been traditionally understood. And there is a way in which it is beginning to be understood by scholars. I want to kind of interact with both. The first thing I want you to be aware of is that, again, with so many of the things that we see in these letters that what our Lord is saying here about Laodicea being neither cold nor hot is reflecting the fact that Laodicea, as significant and as wealthy as it was, Laodicea had no internal means of pure, fresh water. And that good water had to be piped in to the city from the surrounding cities of Hierapolis was one, and I believe Colossae was the other. And what's interesting is that one of the cities was able to pipe in hot water, what we would call kind of like therapeutic mineral water. That water, some commentators say, would be as hot as 95 degrees. That, 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 that's fairly hot. It's not real, real hot, but it, that's fairly hot. Uh, some of the older commentators said that in some cases it can get near boiling. That would be, um, you know, you'd be talking about geysers then, and that may have been the case. And then on the other hand, you had... You had cold water being piped in from another one of the cities. I believe the cold water was from Colossae. And what, what commentators today are saying is essentially this. That when our Lord says you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that thou were cold or hot. And because you're neither, I'll spew you out of my mouth. What they seem to be saying is this. Both hot water and cold water serve a purpose. Now, obviously, we know what cold water purpose that cold water serves. But hot water is also, we could say, therapeutic. We know even in our own country there are certain hot springs where people go to and they, they bathe in these hot springs. There's, there's, there's medicinal uh, value to that. And so the, 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 the newer class of commentators are, are saying that because that was the situation on the ground, what our Lord is saying to this church at Laodicea, you know what? You're in a situation where you're not cold or you're not hot. You're useless. If you were at least cold, there would be some benefit. If you were hot, there would be benefit there. But you're neither. And again, what's interesting is that this is almost, I, I, I don't know if I want to say if the majority of commentators are going in this direction, but many of the commentators are going in, in this direction. The other way to handle this is what we're more familiar with, and that is the fact that this hot and cold is a reference to kind of like the spiritual temperature of either an individual or of a church. And that rather than being zealous for the things of God, there is this coolness and this coldness to the things of God. And it has created a spiritual condition, not a temporary state, but a spiritual condition of lukewarmness. Now of these two approaches, while I think the first approach is helpful... And it's good for us to know that. It creates in our mind, a, I think, a very useful uh, a picture. I do think if I were pressed, I would have to say that I still believe that the more traditional and the older view of looking at this as lukewarmness being a condition that individuals enter into when there is not sufficient zeal for Christ. And, and, and so oftentimes that not sufficient zeal for Christ comes upon us because of a sense of our own self-complacency or a sense in some way, shape, or form we don't need Jesus Christ in every situation or in every instance. I was, Liz was saying to me this past week that she went into uh, a, a local uh, store and I think there was a, a little bumper sticker or something that said you need God in all things. Is that what it said? 
And, she, and I think she said to the woman who was there next to her, two ladies that were there next to her, she said, oh, isn't that nice? You need God in all things. And they said, well, not in all things. <laughs> and, and again, it, it relates the, the mindset of the world. And it's very easy for that to creep into the church. And I do believe that when Christ says to this church, you are lukewarm and it's a nauseating condition, I believe that that's what he's referring to. I don't think so much that he's saying, you know, you're not useful for either one of these things and because of that I'll screw you out. I do think that he is talking about this lukewarmness spiritually that affects the soul. And so what we need to be careful is we need to be careful that we don't fall into that. And we'll probably uh, develop that a little more uh, next week. But what I want you to see again here is, like I said, this, uh, this idea of, uh, of this lukewarmness that, uh, that settles in. And so again, just so that I'm clear here, it's not a failure of usefulness by either being hot or cold. It's the mixture of hot and cold which, meet, which has led to a state or a condition of lukewarmness that our Lord is taking issue with here. It's interesting, is it not, how important fervor in zeal in the Christian life is. You can have respectable religion. And one of the things that I fear is that the Laodiceans were seeking for a respectable religion in a society that had no respect for Christ. That religion will do you no good. That experience will do you no good. Christ calls for zeal. Christ calls for excitement. And that's the very thing that he's pointing at at this point. And I want you to just see some of the places in which we, we see uh, this idea, the need for this zeal. The first thing I would draw to your attention is, is the following. When I talk about this zeal, I, want, I don't want you to misunderstand me because I do recognize that we are all different natures. Uh, some, people, <clears throat> some people by nature are more melancholy, more reserved, more analytical. Other people by nature are maybe impetuous and, and uh, ready, to, re ready to move on a moment's notice. Let me read the following one I have here. While all Christians are of varying natures, and some are more naturally disposed to zeal, and others to a more reflective and deliberate approach to the Christian life, it must not be overlooked that our Christian experience is to be marked by an authentic, spirit-inspired zeal that will manifest itself, that though it will manifest itself differently in each of us, will not be lacking in any of us. Though it will manifest itself differently in each of us, will not be lacking in any of us. Zeal is to mark your Christian life. A couple of passages, uh, again, Paul writes to the Colossians, again, uh, concerning Epaphras. He says the following. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a blessing this man was. Wouldn't you love to have somebody praying for you that you would, that you would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God? And that's what the church of Christ is to do. You are to, be the, you are to be the focus of my prayers. I am to be the focus of your prayers. Your brothers and sisters are to be far to be the focus of our, of our prayers. Paul goes on to say in verse 13 of chapter 4, For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you, and for them that are in Laodicea, and them that are in, that, that are in Hyopolis. And so again, these three cities, again, they were, they, we would say it this way, they were sister cities. And Paul was writing to them, and Paul was addressing them concerning the true nature of Jesus Christ. And, and our Lord Jesus Christ now is writing to this church. He says, listen, your, your, your lukewarmness here is something that's critical. You need to understand things must change. I think of a passage of scripture again in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Some, something of a well-known passage as it ought to be. Paul says this, again, uh, to Titus, he says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, 
and to purify himself with peculiar people zealous of good works. You see, my Christian brothers and sisters, I get it, you know, we, you know, we were in different stages by way of our age and by way of our, our pursuits in life and by way of our necessities and responsibilities. Oh, but this thing of zeal and love for Christ must undergird it all. A peculiar people, zealous of good works. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on this text, and not surprisingly, he sets forth the doctrine of the text in a very succinct way. And he says this, he sums up Titus 2.14 in the following way. Zeal is an essential virtue of a Christian. Zeal is an essential virtue of a Christian. It's not this abnormality that you find in some Christians. It's not something that you find in just those eccentric Christians. It's not that one who, because he's just discovered the reality of his forgiveness of sins, that he can't help but telling everyone about Christ. No, he says this, that zeal is an essential virtue for the Christian. And I ask you a question, my brothers and sisters, I ask this of myself. Is my zeal what it ought to be? Is it where it should be? Or is there a tendency now to this tepidness? Is there a tendency now to this coolness of the things of, to, to, to the things of Christ? He goes on to say this, Christian zeal is indeed a flame, but a sweet one. Or rather, it is the heat and fervor of a, of a sweet flame. For the flame of which it is the heat is none other than that of divine love. And that's the key. That's the key. How do you generate zeal for Christ? It isn't by just, you know, pounding on the, uh, on the, uh, on the pulpit and, and, and saying things with great emphasis and maybe walking back and forth. No, zeal for Christ is the natural effect of a heart and soul that loves Jesus Christ above all things. Haven't we said this in our series already? That Christ is to be loved above all earthly things and, above, and he is to be obeyed above all earthly powers? There is this sense, again, in which zeal is the, is the natural outflow of what it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our Lord says, I would that thou wert hot or cold. Now, as I said before, some take this and say, look, if you're hot, at least you'd be useful for that. If you were cold, you'd be useful for that. But as I said before, I, I, don't, I don't see that. I do see the real danger here is for this coolness to settle in in the life of the Christian. So what is this spiritual lukewarmness? I would define it in the following ways. Spiritual lukewarmness is that state, and that's the important thing. It's not, it's not you and I waking up on a Monday morning exhausted from, <laughs> exhausted from the weekend, or maybe you and I waking up on a, on a Saturday morning exhausted from the, from, from the week and just say, look, I just, I, I just, I, I just need, I need a break here right now. It's not so much that, although it can, that can lead to a state of spiritual complacency. But listen to my definition again here. What is spiritual lukewarmness? It is that state of spiritual danger when the love and fervor for Christ and his glory have cooled and settled into an abiding condition of indifference to the work of the Holy Spirit who in his normal operations within us increases our love for Christ and our desire to see God glorified in all things. In other words, it's a cooling of the, it's a cooling on our part toward the work, the ongoing work of the Spirit of God to draw us more and more to Christ. And what we're going to see next week is that so oftentimes that happens by the things that surround us or because we imbibe ourselves in the culture around us. Look here at verse 17. This will be the focus of our sermon next week. And again, in one sense, this explains why they've fallen into the state of lukewarmness. Because thou sayest, I am rich, 
and increase with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus goes to say this, and you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There's a sense in which the success and the prosperity of the larger culture worked to deflate their zeal and love for God and for Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you, that's the great challenge for us today as well. We, I hate this. It, it hurts me. It pains me to say this. We are confronted with a way of life that, oh, very conveniently, you can live without any reference to God throughout your entire 70, 80, or 90 years. That's the way the world presents itself to you. What need is there for God? What need is there for religion? What need is there for you to be worked up in your mind concerning this thing called sin? And society impresses this stuff on you. And you think, well, maybe if I just, and, and, and maybe again, you don't want to go fully against everything, and you settle in, as I said before, to this respectable religion. What a sick thing. A respectable religion in a society that has no respect for Christ. And you think Christ is, like, good with that? Don't you understand why he says, again, it's nauseating to him? And this word, again, to spoo thee out of my mouth, again, it's very graphic. It literally means to, to vomit it literally means to, uh, to throw up. Again, and, and, and the idea here is this. Rather than being what you should be, you're, you're the very thing that, again, and when he says, I would, rather, I would rather have you be cold or hot, one of the things that the newer approach to this passage of Scripture, and there's, 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 it's not like there's, there's not a reason behind this. Their arguments are good and fair. They say this, that, well, there's no way that Christ would be saying, I would rather have you cold than have you lukewarm. But that's fair enough. But I really think what our Lord is saying is that that condition of lukewarmness is so nauseating to him. It's kind of like what Peter writes in 2 Peter uh, chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 2, verse 21. Better for them not to have known the way of truth than to know it and to have turned from it. That condition of spiritual lukewarmness is absolutely revolting to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying to this church. And so in this whole, this whole thought now, again, of of, uh, of this church and its, and its failure. That, that graphic picture of, of, of vomiting and spewing out, the, 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 the picture is only used maybe, maybe four times in, in, in the Bible, maybe five times. And it's interesting because it always has the, the, the picture of what we would expect when we, when we would see somebody vomit. It's a sickening feeling that causes it. And what's interesting is that we first encounter this picture in the Old Testament. When God the Father says to the people of Israel as they go into the new land, you remember they went into that land. Why did they go into that land? Yes, it was the promised land. But why did they go into that land at that particular time? Do you remember in Genesis 15 when, when God made the promise to Abraham? He says the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. God gave great space and opportunity for repentance on the part of the Amorites. 400 years. 400 years. I always have to remind myself of that. Because I think to myself how far we have degenerated as a society in my own lifetime. Well, that's only been 60 years. God is much more patient than 60 years. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to in any way diminish what I believe is God's rightful anger against the sins of our society. But I want you to know that so oftentimes God's grace extends way beyond what we think is the length necessary. So one of the reasons why the Amorites were removed from the land and the land was given to the people of Israel was because of the sins of the nation. And so when the nation is about ready to go into the land... Listen to what God says through Moses to the people. He warns them against He warns them against taking on the sins of the nations that were there. Don't fall into the sins of the culture, is how we would say it today. 
And in Leviticus 18.28, the warning is this. If you do, the land will spew you out also when you defile it as it spewed out the nations that were before you. Look, there are nations there that because of their sin, the land couldn't handle them. That's how revolting their sin was. And if you do the same thing, you'll be spit out as well. Do you understand here? You see the, 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 the imagery here. Levit Leviticus 20, verse 22. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them that, that the land, in other words, in order that the land where I bring you to dwell therein will not spoo you out. Sin, the, this is why we know the passage of scripture. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Sin, again, is destructive to societies. We've talked about these things before. And our Lord, when he uses this image, image to the church at Laodicea, he is, he is expressing in, 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 the most, in the most graphic way the distaste he has for lukewarm religion or lukewarm spirituality. My brothers and my sisters, again, I, so many times, this, this has been, this has not been the, I've, I've felt many times as though I've, I've, I've beat some of you up in the, uh, in, in, in the preaching of this series of sermons. But I can't say anything less than what the text says. And when our Lord Jesus Christ has this kind of reaction to a lukewarm church, am I supposed to say from this pulpit, hey, look, okay, I get it. Just, you know, moderate it a little bit. Don't worry about it. You know, God's good with you. You know, it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing you really have to worry about. Can I say that in light of this passage of scripture? By God's grace, I won't. I won't say it to myself. And by God's grace, I won't say it to you. So again, to vomit out, is, it means to respond with this extreme disgust. Well, what's interesting here, and we don't often pick this up, and I have to admit, I just saw this this week, actually this morning in my final preparations for this passage of Scripture, that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 16, believe it or not, have a glimmer of hope for the church. Look at verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, very few translations pick up on the point, on a point of grammar here that I think is very necessary, and it's also very encouraging. The, the only major translation that really picks up this point that I'm trying to make is from the King James, where the King, I'm sorry, is from the NIV, where the NIV says, because you are neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit thee out of my mouth. In other words, Christ isn't done with his church. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? This church, which is so revolting to Jesus Christ, he's not done with them yet. And that's why he says, I counsel thee. And that's why he says, I stand at the door and knock. And that's why he continually appeals to his church. And that's why the continual preaching of the word of God is so necessary. And that's why we must bring out both the things that Christ hates and the things that Christ loves. And that's why we must say that this great and gracious God is a God who will always forgive you of your sins. Come to this one. Amen. You see, this is again our Lord Jesus Christ coming not only to the church at Laodicea, but coming to our church as well. So we've seen Christ's introduction to this church. We've seen Christ's examination of this church. Now Christ's reaction to this church was, I've already brought out the reaction. It's kind of graphic, isn't it? He's nauseated by this church. We've discussed that. The next thing I want you to see is that Christ is willing to counsel this church. Isn't this beautiful? 
Notice what he says here. Again, I believe it's in verse, uh, verse 18. Notice what we have here. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. I want you to see something here. Here is the counsel of Christ to an erring church. Here is the counsel of Christ <clears throat> to a lukewarm church. Here is a counsel of Christ that's flirting and halting between two opinions. That's why we read from Joshua 24 this morning, where Joshua says, As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And we can, can we say, and for me and my church, we will serve the Lord. Yeah. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is counseling. Now, it's, once again, there's another interesting thing here about this word counsel here. Now, again, in, in the scripture, biblical counsel is highly esteemed. Biblical counsel is highly valued. You're, again, if we can put it in such, such simple terms, the God who made you gave you a book as to how to live life. And the answers for how to live life is found in this book. And biblical counsel is highly valued and highly esteemed in Scripture. But what's interesting is that when our Lord Jesus Christ uses this word, when he says, I counsel thee to buy of me, he uses a word for counsel that's only used about four or five times again in the New Testament. And this is the only time where it's used in a positive sense. And, the, and again, the, the idea of the word counsel is no, there's nothing really mysterious here. It means to, 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 to set before someone a course of action, to make an appeal to somebody to do something in light of a, of a truth or in light of a situation that is clear by way of the revelation of the word of God. But what's interesting is that so oftentimes this word that Jesus uses here in 318 was used in reference to the counsel that the religious leaders took against the Lord Jesus Christ in order to put him to death. Matthew 26, verse 4. And they consulted how they might take Jesus, and they consulted how they may, might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. I just want to say this very briefly. The world may counsel in a way that leads to evil and destruction, but Christ will always counsel in a way that leads to spiritual life. You see, the counsel of Christ to his church is always a beneficial thing. This idea of Christ counseling his church reminds us of a great passage in Isaiah chapter, uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, doesn't it? For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his uh, shoulder, and he shall be called uh, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. There is the counsel of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ counsel? Look there again in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. Not the gold that's the, that, the, that the Laodicean culture offers you. I counsel thee I counsel thee that thou might uh, again that thou uh, mayest buy white raiment, not the raiment that uh, that Laodicea provides. I counsel thee to buy again I self, uh, not the I self of uh, of Laodicea, but that which I offer. And as I said before, in all of these things, what Christ is doing, Christ is showing to us that He is the answer to every one of the church's situations, every one of your situations as well. Notice again, I counsel thee to buy me. What is our Lord saying here? Is our Lord speaking about some kind of some kind of situation which you and I can purchase salvation? Obviously not. What Christ is doing, he's picking up again on another Old Testament theme. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. You know the passage. Ho, everyone that thirst, come to the waters. He that has no money, come ye and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, you think you can purchase what you really need before me with the things of this world? Come and buy of me. And you say, I have nothing to buy. He says, come and buy of me, and I will freely give. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. And Jesus Christ is calling this church again to realize its error. But notice what he goes on to say here in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten be zealous, therefore, and repent. Let me just say one thing here. One of the reasons why I believe that 
the traditional view of lukewarmness is the one that's being embraced here is because when our Lord is calling this church to repent, he doesn't say repent and be useful. He says repent and be zealous. You see, the antithesis of lukewarmness is not uselessness. The antithesis of lukewarmness is being zealous. And so the point that Jesus is making here, he is calling for you and I to have this spiritual fervor within our hearts. And then the last point I want to make here, there's much more that we develop. We're going to be revisiting this passage on next week. So we know the passage and we love it. Many of us, as soon as I begin to read these words, we'll have a picture in our mind that we've all seen Jesus knocking at the door. And so in response to this church, what does he do? He reveals to this church how nauseating its condition is before Christ. But he offers to this church counsel. He doesn't reject this church. He doesn't say, I'm out of here when it comes to this church. And he comes to this church now and he knocks. But I want to engage you with something here. That the Christ who knocks on this church's door and the Christ who knocks, we'll use the expression, on the door of your heart, is that Christ who will be very, very honest and frank and candid with you concerning the nature of your soul. Will you open the door to a Christ who knocks and who may come in and say, your situation is critical. You are in a dire situation. Would you open the door to that knocking Christ? Would you open the door to a Christ who says, I love you, but my love for you is manifested and rebuking you for your sin and calling you to leave off anything that would dampen your love for me? Would you answer the door of that knocking Christ? And so this Christ who knocks is not a Christ of our own imagination. This Christ who knocks is the Christ of this passage of Scripture here who finds revolting spiritual lukewarmness in the lives or hearts of his people, but who never is content to leave them there and always is seeking to draw them away from those things that would dampen their love for him and call them back to himself. Will you answer the knock of that Christ? Our Father and our God, in the name of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, may our hearts, may our hearts, may our hearts be open to this knocking Christ who comes not only exposing our sins, but, but who comes in grace, restoring to us that spiritual zeal and excitement that you call us to have. Grant this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.